Chapter 68, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 68, Part 3. The generosity of the Christian princes was cold and tardy, but in the first apprehension of a siege, Constantine had negotiated, in the isles of the archipelago, the Moria, and Sicily, the most indispensable supplies. As early as the beginning of April, five great ships, equipped for merchandise and war, would have sailed from the harbor of Chios, had not the wind blown obstinately from the north. One of these ships bore the imperial flag, the remaining four belonging to the Genoese, and they were laden with wheat and barley, with wine, oil, and vegetables, and above all with soldiers and mariners for the service of the capital. After a tedious delay, a gentle breeze, and on the second day a strong gale from the south, carried them through the Hellespont and the Propontis, but the city was already invested by sea and land, and the Turkish fleet, at the entrance of the Bosphorus, was stretched from shore to shore in the form of a crescent, to intercept, or at least to repel, these bold auxiliaries. The reader, who has present to his mind the geographical picture of Constantinople, will conceive and admire the greatness of the spectacle. The five Christian ships continued to advance with joyful shouts, and a full press both of sails and oars, against the hostile fleet of three hundred vessels, and the rampart, the camp, the coasts of Europe and Asia, were lined with innumerable spectators, who anxiously awaited the event of this momentous succor. At the first view, that event could not appear doubtful. The superiority of the Moslems was beyond all measure or account, and, in a calm, their numbers and valor must inevitably have prevailed. But their hasty and imperfect navy had been created, not by the genius of the people, but by the will of the sultan. In the height of their prosperity, the Turks have acknowledged that, if God had given them the earth, he had left the sea to the infidels, and a series of defeats, a rapid progress of decay, has established the truth of their modest confession. Except eighteen galleys of some force, the rest of their fleet consisted of open boats, rudely constructed and awkwardly managed, crowded with troops and destitute of cannon, and since courage arises in a great measure from the consciousness of strength, the bravest of the Janissaries might tremble on a new element. In the Christian squadron, five stout and lofty ships were guided by skillful pilots, and manned with the veterans of Italy and Greece, long practiced in the arts and perils of the sea. Their weight was directed to sink or scatter the weak obstacles that impeded their passage. Their artillery swept the waters. Their liquid fire was poured on the heads of the adversaries, who, with the design of boarding, presumed to approach them, and the winds and waves are always on the side of the ablest navigators. In this conflict, the imperial vessel, which had almost been overpowered, was rescued by the Genoese, but the Turks, in a distant and closer attack, were twice repulsed with considerable loss. Mohammed himself sat on horseback on the beach to encourage their valor, by his voice and presence, by the promise of reward, and by fear more potent than fear of the enemy. The passions of his soul, and even the gestures of his body, seemed to intimate the actions of the combatants, and, as if he had been the lord of nature, he spurred his horse with a fearless and impotent effort into the sea. His loud reproaches and the clamors of the camp 
urged the Ottomans to a third attack, more fatal and bloody than the two former. And I must repeat, though I cannot credit the evidence of Franza, who affirms, from their own mouth, that they lost above twelve thousand men in the slaughter of the day. They fled in disorder to the shores of Europe and Asia, while the Christian squadron, triumphant and unhurt, steered along the Bosphorus, and securely anchored within the chain of the harbor. In the confidence of victory, they boasted that the whole Turkish power must have yielded to their arms, but the admiral, or Captain Bashal, found some consolation from a painful wound in his eye, by representing that accident as the cause of his defeat. Baltha Ogli was a renegade of the race of the Bulgarian princes. His military character was tainted with the unpopular vice of avarice, and under the despotism of the prince or people, misfortune is a sufficient evidence of guilt. His rank and services were annihilated by the displeasure of Mohammed. In the royal presence, the Captain Bashal was extended on the ground by four slaves, and received one hundred strokes with a golden rod. His death had been pronounced, and he adorned the clemency of the sultan, who was satisfied with the milder punishment of confiscation and exile. The introduction of this supply revived the hopes of the Greeks, and accused the supineness of their western allies. Amidst the deserts of Anatolia and the rocks of Palestine, the millions of the crusaders had buried themselves in a voluntary and inevitable grave, but the situation of the imperial city was strong against her enemies, and accessible to her friends, and a rational and moderate armament of the maritime states might have saved the relics of the Roman name, and maintained a Christian fortress in the heart of the Ottoman Empire. Yet this was the sole and feeble attempt for the deliverance of Constantinople. The more distant powers were insensible to its danger, and the ambassador of Hungary, or at least of Huniades, resided in the Turkish camp, to remove the fears and to direct the operations of the sultan. It was difficult for the Greeks to penetrate the secret of the divan, yet the Greeks are persuaded that a resistance, so obstinate and surpassing, had fatigued the perseverance of Mohammed. He began to mediate a retreat, and the siege would have been speedily raised if the ambition and jealousy of the second vizier had not opposed the perfidious advice of Khalil Bashal, who still maintained a secret correspondence with the Byzantine court. The reduction of the city appeared to be hopeless, unless a double attack could be made from the harbor as well as from the land, but the harbor was inaccessible, and impenetrable chain was now defended with eight large ships, more than twenty of a smaller size, and several galleys and sloops, and instead of forcing this barrier, the Turks might apprehend a naval sally and a second encounter in the open sea. In this perplexity, the genius of Mohammed conceived and executed a plan of a bold and marvelous cast, of transporting by land his lighter vessels and military stores from the Bosphorus into the higher part of the harbor. The distance is about ten miles, the ground is uneven, and was overspread with thickets, and as the road must be opened behind the suburb of Galata, their free passage or total destruction must depend on the option of the Genoese. But these selfish merchants were ambitious of the favor of being the last devoured, and the deficiency of art was supplied by the strength of obedient myriads. A level way was covered with a broad platform of strong and solid planks, and to render them more slippery and smooth, they were anointed with the fat of sheep and oxen. 
Fourscore light galleys and brigantines of fifty and thirty oars were disembarked on the Bosphorus shore, arranged successively on rollers, and drawn forth by the power of men and pulleys. Two guides or pilots were stationed at the helm and the prow of each vessel. The sails were unfurled to the winds, and the labor was cheered by song and acclamation. In the course of a single night, this Turkish fleet painfully climbed the hill, steered over the plain, and was launched from the declivity into the shallow waters of the harbor, far above the molestation of the deeper vessels of the Greeks. The real importance of this operation was magnified by the consternation and confidence which it inspired. But the notorious, unquestionable fact was displayed before the eyes and is recorded by the pens of the two nations. A similar stratagem had been repeatedly practiced by the ancients. The Ottoman galleys, I must again repeat, should be considered as large boats, and if we compare the magnitude and the distance, the obstacles and the means, the boasted miracle has perhaps been equaled by the industry of our own times. As soon as Mohammed had occupied the upper harbor with the fleet and army, he constructed in the narrowest part a bridge, or rather mole, of fifty cubits in breadth and one hundred in length. It was formed of casks and hogsheads, joined with rafters, linked with iron, and covered with a solid floor. On this floating battery he planted one of his largest cannon, while the fourscore galleys with troops and scaling ladders approached the most accessible side, which had formerly been stormed by the Latin conquerors. The indolence of the Christians has been accused for not destroying these unfinished works, but their fire, by a superior fire, was controlled and silenced, nor were they wanting in a nocturnal attempt to burn the vessels as well as the bridge of the sultan. His vigilance prevented their approach. Their foremost galleots were sunk or taken. Forty youths, the bravest of Italy and Greece, were inhumanly massacred at his command. Nor could the emperor's grief be assuaged by the just, though cruel, retaliation of exposing from the walls the heads of two hundred and sixty Mussulman captives. After a siege of forty days, the fate of Constantinople could no longer be averted. The diminutive garrison was exhausted by a double attack. The fortifications, which had stood for ages against hostile violence, were dismantled on all sides by the Ottoman cannon. Many breaches were opened, and near the gate of St. Romanus four towers had been leveled with the ground. For the payment of his feeble and mutinous troops, Constantine was compelled to despoil the churches with the promise of a fourfold restitution, and his sacrilege offered a new reproach to the enemies of the Union. A spirit of discord impaired the remnant of the Christian strength. The Genoese and Venetian auxiliaries asserted the preeminence of their respective service, and Justiniani and the great duke, whose ambition was not extinguished by the common danger, accused each other of treachery and cowardice. During the siege of Constantinople, the words of peace and capitulation had been sometimes pronounced, and several embassies had passed between the camp and the city. The Greek emperor was humbled by adversity, and would have yielded to any terms compatible with religion and royalty. The Turkish sultan was desirous of sparing the blood of his soldiers, still more desirous of securing for his own use the Byzantine treasures, and he accomplished a sacred duty in presenting to the Gabors the choice of circumcision, of tribute, or of death. The avarice of Mohammed might have been satisfied with an annual sum of 100,000 ducats, but his ambition grasped to the capital of the East. To the prince he offered a rich equivalent, to the people a free toleration, or a safe departure. 
but after some fruitless treaty, he declared his resolution of finding either a throne or a grave under the walls of Constantinople. A sense of honor and the fear of universal reproach forbade Palaeologus to resign the city into the hands of the Ottomans, and he determined to abide the last extremities of war. Several days were employed by the sultan in the preparations of the assault, and a respite was granted by his favorite science of astrology, which had fixed on the 29th of May as the fortunate and fatal hour. On the evening of the 27th, he issued his final orders, assembled in his presence the military chiefs, and dispersed his heralds through the camp to proclaim the duty and the motives of the perilous enterprise. Fear is the first principle of a despotic government, and his menaces were expressed in the oriental style, that the fugitives and deserters, had they the wings of a bird, should not escape from his inexorable justice. The greater part of his bashaws and janizaries were the offspring of Christian parents, but the glories of the Turkish name were perpetuated by successive adoption, and in the gradual change of individuals, the spirit of a legion, a regiment, or of an oda, is kept alive by imitation and discipline. In this holy warfare, the Muslims were exhorted to purify their minds with prayer, their bodies with seven ablutions, and to abstain from food till the close of the ensuing day. A crowd of dervishes visited the tents, to instill the desire of martyrdom, and the assurance of spending an immortal youth amidst the rivers and gardens of paradise, and in the embraces of the black-eyed virgins. Yet Mohammed principally trusted to the efficacy of temporal and visible rewards. A double pay was promised to the victorious troops. The city and the buildings, said Mohammed, are mine, but I resign to your valor the captives and the spoil, the treasures of gold and beauty. Be rich and be happy. Many are the provinces in my empire. The intrepid soldier who first ascends the walls of Constantinople shall be rewarded with the government of the fairest and most wealthy, and my gratitude shall accumulate his honors and fortunes above the measure of his own hopes. Such various and potent motives diffused among the Turks a general ardor, regardless of life and impatient for action. The camp re-echoed with the Muslim shouts of, God is God, there is but one God, and Mohammed is the apostle of God. And the sea and land, from Galata to the Seven Towers, were illuminated by the blaze of their nocturnal fires. Far different was the state of the Christians, who, with loud and impotent complaints, deplored the guilt or the punishment of their sins. The celestial image of the Virgin had been exposed in solemn procession, but their divine patroness was deaf to their entreaties. They accused the obstinacy of the emperor for refusing a timely surrender, anticipated the horrors of their fate, and sighed for the repose and security of Turkish servitude. The noblest of the Greeks and the bravest of the allies were summoned to the palace to prepare them on the evening of the 28th for the duties and dangers of the general assault. The last speech of Paleologus was the funeral oration of the Roman Empire. He promised, he conjured, he vainly attempted to infuse the hope which was extinguished in his own mind. In this world, all was comfortless and gloomy, and neither the gospel nor the church had proposed any conspicuous recompense to the heroes who fall in the service of their country. But the example of their prince and the confinement of a siege had armed these warriors with the courage of despair, and the pathetic scene is described by the feelings of the historian Franza, who was himself present at this mournful assembly. They wept, they embraced, 
regardless of their families and fortunes, they devoted their lives, and each commander, departing to his station, maintained all night a vigilant and anxious watch on the rampart. The emperor and some faithful companions entered the dome of St. Sophia, which in a few hours was to be converted into a mosque, and devoutly received with tears and prayers the sacrament of the Holy Communion. He reposed some moments in the palace, which resounded with cries and lamentation, solicited the pardon of all whom he might have injured, and mounted on horseback to visit the guards, to explore the motions of the enemy. The distress and fall of the last Constantine was more glorious than the long prosperity of the Byzantine Caesars. In the confusion of darkness, an assailant may sometimes succeed, but in this great and general attack, the military judgment and astrological knowledge of Mohammed advised him to expect the morning, the memorable 29th of May, in the 1453rd year of the Christian era. The preceding night had been strenuously employed. The troops, the cannon, and the fascines were advanced to the edge of the ditch, which in many parts presented a smooth and level passage to the breach, and his fourscore galleys almost touched with the prows and their scaling ladders the less defensible walls of the harbor. Under pain of death, silence was enjoined, but the physical laws of motion and sound are not obedient to discipline or fear. Each individual might suppress his voice and measure his footsteps, but the march and labor of thousands must inevitably produce a strange confusion of dissonant clamors which reached the ears of the watchmen of the towers. At daybreak, without the customary signal of the morning gun, the Turks assaulted the city by sea and land, and the similitude of a twined or twisted thread has been applied to the closeness and continuity of their line of attack. The foremost ranks consisted of the refuse of the host, a voluntary crowd who fought without order or command. Of the feebleness of age or childhood, of peasants and vagrants, and of all who had joined the camp in the blind hope of plunder and martyrdom, the common impulse drove them onwards to the wall. The most audacious to climb were instantly precipitated, and not a dart nor a bullet of the Christians was idly wasted on the accumulated throng. But their strength and ammunition were exhausted in this laborious defense. The ditch was filled with the bodies of the slain, and they supported the footsteps of their companions, and of this devoted vanguard the death was more serviceable than the life. Under the respective Beshaws and Sanjaks, the troops of Anatolia and Romania were successively led to the charge. Their progress was various and doubtful, but after a conflict of two hours, the Greeks still maintained and improved their advantage, and the voice of the emperor was heard encouraging his soldiers to achieve, by a last effort, the deliverance of their country. At that fatal moment, the Janissaries arose, fresh, vigorous, and invincible. The sultan himself on horseback, with an iron mace in his hand, was the spectator and judge of their valor. He was surrounded by ten thousand of his domestic troops, whom he reserved for the decisive occasion, and the tide of battle was directed and impelled by his voice and eye. His numerous ministers of justice were posted behind the line to urge, to restrain, and to punish, and if danger was in the front, shame and inevitable death were in the rear of the fugitives. The cries of fear and of pain were drowned in the martial music of drums, trumpets, and atabals, and experience has proved that the mechanical operations of sounds, by quickening the circulation of the blood and spirits, will act on the human machine more forcibly than the eloquence of reason and honor.
From the lines, the galleys, and the bridge, the Ottoman artillery thundered on all sides, and the camp and city, the Greeks and the Turks, were involved in a cloud of smoke, which could only be dispelled by the final deliverance or destruction of the Roman Empire. The single combats of the heroes of history or fable amuse our fancy and engage our affections. The skilled evolutions of war may inform the mind and improve a necessary though pernicious science. But in the uniform and odious pictures of a general assault, all is blood and horror and confusion. Nor shall I strive, at the distance of three centuries and a thousand miles, to delineate a scene of which there could be no spectators and of which the actors themselves were incapable of forming any just or adequate idea. The immediate loss of Constantinople may be ascribed to the bullet or arrow which pierced the gauntlet of John Justiniani. The sight of his blood and the exquisite pain appalled the courage of the chief, whose arms and counsels were the firmest rampart of the city. As he withdrew from his station in quest of a surgeon, his flight was perceived and stopped by the indefatigable emperor. Your wound, exclaimed Paleologus, is slight. The danger is pressing. Your presence is necessary. And whither will you retire? I will retire, said the trembling Genoese, by the same road which God has opened to the Turks. And at these words he hastily passed through one of the breaches of the inner wall. By this pusillanimous act he stained the honors of a military life. In the few days which he survived in Galata, or the Isle of Chios, were embittered by his own and the public reproach. His example was imitated by the greatest part of the Latin auxiliaries, and the defense began to slacken when the attack was pressed with redoubled vigor. The number of the Ottomans was fifty, perhaps a hundred times superior to that of the Christians. The double walls were reduced by the cannon to a heap of ruins. In a circuit of several miles, some places must be found more easy of access or more feebly guarded, and if the besiegers could penetrate in a single point, the whole city was irrecoverably lost. The first who deserved the sultan's reward was Hassan the Janizary, of gigantic stature and strength. With his scimitar in one hand, and his buckler in the other, he ascended the outward fortifications. Of the thirty Janizaries who were emulous of his valor, eighteen perished in the bold adventure. Hassan and his twelve companions had reached the summit. The giant was precipitated from the rampart, he rose on one knee, and was again oppressed by a shower of darts and stones. But his success had proved that the achievement was possible. The walls and towers were instantly covered with a swarm of Turks, and the Greeks, now driven from the vantage ground, were overwhelmed by the increasing multitudes. Amidst these multitudes, the emperor, who accomplished all the duties of a general and a soldier, was long seen, and finally lost. The nobles who fought round his person, sustained, till their last breath, the honorable names of Paleologus and Cantacuzene. His mournful exclamation was heard, Cannot there be found a Christian to cut off my head? And his last fear was that of falling alive into the hands of the infidels. The prudent despair of Constantine cast away the purple. Amidst the tumult he fell by an unknown hand, and his body was buried under a mountain of the slain. After his death, resistance and order were no more. The Greeks fled towards the city, and many were pressed and stifled in the narrow pass of the gate of St. Romanus. The victorious Turks rushed through the breaches of the inner wall, and as they advanced into the streets, they were soon joined by their brethren, 
who had forced the gate Fenar on the side of the harbor. In the first heat of the pursuit, about two thousand Christians were put to the sword, but avarice soon prevailed over cruelty, and the victors acknowledged that they should immediately have given quarter, if the valor of the emperor and his chosen band had not prepared them for a similar opposition in every part of the capital. It was thus, after a siege of fifty-three days, that Constantinople, which had defied the power of Chosures, of the Chagan, and the Caliphs, was irretrievably subdued by the arms of Mohammed II. Her empire only had been subverted by the Latins. Her religion was trampled in the dust by the Muslim conquerors. End of chapter 68, part 3